called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Today, I'm very pleased to uh, have a glass of bourbon with and speak with uh, 3rd District Congressman from Louisville, Kentucky, John Yarmouth. And uh, Congressman is also a former reporter, a reformed reporter, I guess, (laughs) reformed journalist. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but let's just jump into the question. Um, it disturbs members of the press when we hear that we're called fake media and that we're enemy of the people. Um, how, does, how do you feel about that? It hurts to my core. I, I spent more of my professional life in journalism than I have in politics. I understand how critical a legitimate media is to the functioning of democracy. And I, I see on a daily basis what ignorance of reality does to politics and government. So it's, it's very disturbing. And you know, I was a staffer up here in Washington in the early 70s. And I remember Spiro Agnew was vice president, and he started nattering nabobs of negativism. And you know, it's been a concerted effort on the part of the right in America to discredit legitimate media. And the reason they're doing it is because if nobody has credibility, then anything has credibility. And they've, they've essentially carved a space out for the, the kind of media that we get on Fox News and Breitbart and all sorts of crazy places. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because as a reporter, I, I identify three things, and I, and I, I want to dive into this a little bit. I maintain that it started in, ni- in the 1980s with, with Ronald Reagan. When he got rid of, well, first of all, he brought in Fowler, chairman of, of the um, FCC, and whereas airwaves used to be considered a sacred trust, he called them nothing more than selling toasters. And they deregulated the industry and allowed people to buy each other up. Then they got rid of the fairness doctrine. They allowed newspapers to buy each other up. And today, there are 1,400 papers that have gone belly up just in the last few years. Right. All of this started in the 80s with Reagan. Yes or no? Well, again, I think it may have started before that, but well, clear, okay. clearly the, the, the kind of big picture situation with media, the business environment, regulation or deregulation, right. and then the, the, the development of the Internet, which has fragmented the media even further, has all um, but isn't dramatically that- changed, again, changed the economics of Right. Of journalism and, and certainly the, um, I don't want to say the, the impact of journalism. Well, when you go back to that, though, I mean, they said the same thing about television, but we managed to regulate television and the airwaves. We could do that with the Internet. I look at it this way, and I, t- I take a look at two different properties that kind of highlight the point. The first one you and I both know very well. I worked there. I loved the guy very much, uh, Barry Bingham Sr., when he owned the Courier-Journal and Louisville Times, was consistently one of the top ten newspapers mm-hmm. in the United States, had bureaus all over the country, had foreign bureaus, I think at one point in time, had 20 people covering D.C. Yeah. 
And now... Howard Feynman among them. Yes, yes. And now today, it looks like a shopper. And it's owned by Gannett. And it's a pale shadow of its former self. Sure, corporatization, uh, corporate ownership of of media has been very damaging, very destructive. So why not break it up? Why not trust bust a little and get rid of and, and force media properties to sell and, and break well, up? It's a question of whether there are any buyers. Uh, so <laughs> so I, have, I, have a, I have an important stake in, in journalism right now. My son is um, a publisher and editor. And he, well, I shouldn't say publisher, he's an owner and editor. He does have a publisher. <laughs> but I, I started the Alternative Free Leo. Weekly, Leo, in 1990. I sold it in 2003. He... In full disclosure, I had a cousin who sold advertising for oh, Leo. All right, good, great. Uh, helped keep it alive for yeah. twenty-nine years now, um, and he it's a bought great paper. It, he bought it four and a half years ago, and it wasn't my idea, but he bought it, and he's doing great with it. So I, I'm very much concerned about the economics of journalism and the market marketability of journalism, and that's where you know you could break up Gannett and Sinclair and some of these other giants and should but, but they have to have buyers out there and that's i'm not so sure there are well i i take a look at the you know like sinclair and and all that stuff you know there used to be a thousand reporters i mean there are whole parts of the federal government that go unreported there are cities that don't have a local media there's still a demand oh yeah and part of it goes down to a state and local government where they get rid of uh, like uh, public service ads and public notice ads and all of those things cut into its death by a thousand cuts yeah. for us in small news, in community newspapers, right. Leo being one of them. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you, you've learned things kind of anecdotally in this job. And I was at a session uh, not too many months ago, but with a group of young entrepreneurs. And I asked them how they promoted their business. Not one of them advertised on what we would consider conventional media. They're all doing it online. And you know they have their own website, websites and they're doing what was social media. And I, it, it occurred to me that that's another thing that's threatening. Yes, it is. Media rely on advertising for uh, revenue. So you know, we, I, there, you're gonna see more and more um, nonprofit media transitions, I think. For-profit companies that go to nonprofits so they can raise money through charitable donations to keep themselves going. That's a really sad state of affairs when you're relying on charitable donations. Yes, Um, we know how charitable people are. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, again, there's just so many things now working against a vibrant uh, commercial media operation. And I I look, the other one I I, I mentioned too, the second one I, I bring up all the time, I worked when I was very young down in Laredo, Texas. There was a town then of about 100,000. Today, it's a town of 300,000. At the time, there were three television stations, two newspapers, and several radio stations. Radio stations don't do news anymore. There is one television station that has five affiliates. So it's the ABC, NBC, CBS, it's, it's Telemundo, but it's one. So instead of a group of five having three or four reporters, it's a group of one having three or four reporters. Uh, fewer reporters, fewer. Uh, there's one newspaper, fewer methods of reading, and undercovered there. It's just, and that happened because of deregulation, which yeah. started with the FCC. Those television stations went away, they all bought themselves out. And instead of, you know, it used to be, the saying was, 
when I first started, you needed three to five years experience before you could go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now you have networks hiring you straight out of school and paying you less money because the corporate overlords want to make their profit. And then they boot you out after three or five years and hire somebody cheaper. Well, when I remember when I was a staffer, again, in the early 70s, and I dealt with a lot of reporters, and there were really intelligent, seasoned reporters at every corner. I mean, you, you really couldn't get away with anything if you were on the, on the, the, the government side. Now you can. Um, now, it's, you're right. It's, it's 22, 23, 24-year-olds who really don't, they don't give them time to actually prepare for interviews. They may give them two questions. And then, it, it, invariably, at the end of every interview, they'll say, is there anything I've forgotten to ask you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you remembered everything. <laughs> that's right. Well, that indictment, don't worry about it. You, right. you, <laughs> well, that's, you know, that takes, now that segues us into the White House. There are that the coverage of the White House is uh, I mean, there are still some very good people that are there. But I do notice and as a member of the press and the first president I covered was Reagan. I do notice a lack of institutional knowledge in the press. And I'm sure you've seen that walking through your door as well. How do you deal with that? I don't know that there is a way to deal with it. There's um, that's sad. It is. People, from a life-sustaining uh, perspective, you, you can't stay in journalism for a long period if you want to, if you want to have a decent standard of living. Thanks. And, I mean, there was, a, there was an article in the New York Times, somebody was a writer, I just read it yesterday, or maybe, I don't remember, yesterday or this morning, but it was about somebody talking about when she would, she's working for the New York Times and doing cover essays and she gets $300. Yeah, that's it. And, yeah, you know, and that's how do you sustain a life on that? No, and I mean, community newspapers pay their freelancers thirty-five bucks, forty-five bucks a story. How do you expect yeah. to get a quality and be any kind of? I mean, you get a lot of quantity; you'll right. turn out ten or twenty, but to get the quality out of it, you can't do it. Right. So, the, the, the relation to institutional knowledge, people can't generally can't afford to stay around long enough to develop any of that. And you know, that H.L. Mencken you. said that, too. He said that, he? He, yeah, he said that um, journalism has always captured the imagination of people of, of good thought and intelligence. Their central problem is keeping them. And that hasn't go. changed in the no, years. No, that's right. That's right. So let's talk a little bit more about the Democrats, because this is... What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> you, you got you got beat in 2016, and nobody saw that coming. Right. Um, and now in 2020, uh, one of the things that Tom Perez and I've known him for a while. He used to be a county uh, official in uh, Montgomery County, where I live. Um, said, "Hey, we're going to ban Fox News. Why do you give the president that kind of fodder? Why not? Why not have a debate with Fox?" Sure, I, I didn't get that. I, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Okay, um, I thought it was the only one. <laughs> no, it makes it makes no sense um, because you need to be willing to put yourself out there to at least develop, hopefully, some some skepticism in those among those audience. Members or a rapport that, with that, them that well maybe the, maybe we're not getting everything that right. that's really going on, and I don't know how you do that unless you you show up and particularly with with hosting a debate I mean what you know it's all it's going to be all of our players right. on the field what are you afraid <laughs> what are you afraid of the questions right yeah, I mean yeah. I I, don't, I I didn't get that so how what's the path all right 
I know it wasn't total exoneration, but he gets a get big boost by what Barr did with the yeah. memo. Mm-hmm. No one I haven't seen yet, the, the Mueller report, and I know you haven't, and mm-hmm. very few have. But what's the path forward for the Democrats? Or should they put their time into seeking impeachment or finding someone to beat Trump in 2020? Well, I think we can do both. I think we need to do both. Uh, I, I have a little bit different perspective on impeachment than Speaker Pelosi does. What's uh, yours? Mine is that I'm, I'm convinced that the president has committed impeachable offenses. And I actually never referenced when I've talked about it. I've never talked about Russia. That was right. something I had no knowledge of. But I know he's violated the Emoluments Clause. It still does on a daily basis. I know he's, a, he's dealt with abuse of power. Uh, he's threatened to use the, uh, you mentioned the FCC, he's threatened to yeah. use the FCC against tele, uh, broadcasters. I mean, these are all, this is the, the fundamental undermining of our democracy. And For those, me, those alone. Are, to me, those are impeachable. If we, if we believe that there are impeachable offenses, we, we need to begin the process or impeachment means nothing. We can't say, oh, well, he's, he's an unindicted co-conspirator in New York because he can't be, he, they've already right. said he violated campaign finance laws, uh, but, and we can't indict him, so what, what do, do we do? do? And I do think, you, I think risk? you have to. And as a matter of fact, I think we already have. What, so I think started? Jerry Nadler, when, he, when yeah. he sent out 81 requests for information, uh, essentially began the process. Began the process. But the question becomes then, do you waste your energy, do you dilute your energy by concentrating on two paths instead of putting your eggs in one basket and trying to get them out? Because you're not going to impeach him before. You're no, not no. going to impeach him. You've got, you've got the we're Republicans not go, we're not and the expel. Senate will not get rid of right. him. We are not going to convict him and expel him from office. That's okay. not going to happen. But again, impeachment is there for a reason. And the Senate never convicted Richard Nixon, but the process... Of impeachment. He, he saw the writing on the wall and exactly, got out. drove him out. So I don't think the Republicans would do that today. Do you? They may not. They may not. But it depends what, what turns up. I mean, you know, we've got, I don't know, more than a dozen investigations going on in various uh, U.S. attorney's offices in different districts and state of New York and who knows what else. So there may be plenty that turns up uh, in the next few months. But, again, I don't think we should focus on it. We've got a lot of important policy work to do, and I think until there is a significant narrowing of the presidential field, it's going to be us to define what the Democratic Party is about. What is the Democratic Party about? The way I like to put it is the Democrats believe that government can help make life easier for people. And I say easier, whether it's to get an education, whether it's to vote, whether it's to... Uh, buy a house, whether it's to heat their homes, whether it's to eat. <laughs> or free to speak or worship whoever they want. Exactly. Exactly right. Republicans, this modern uh, brand of Republican, always tries to make life harder in every one of those areas. And I Well, think you can thank your buddy Mitch McConnell for that. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> we'll so, get to that in a minute. <laughs> I want to talk about that one. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think that, to me, is the essence of the difference between the two parties now. And... So, so we, did, we did with the voting, the, our huge voting rights package. Right. Uh, we did that. Uh, we've got, we passed some, the first gun safety legislation. And in decades, we're going to work on infrastructure. We're going to work on a lot of family-related issues. Uh, so 
We but really need, and, and the, the problem, Brian, is going to be, as we do it, we need to market the hell out of it. Because well, we that's need, one thing you all don't do very the, well. The, well, and, it, and the environment makes it hard. Because right. you've got somebody who dominates. Oh, yes. Dominates the, uh, the news. The airwaves. <clears throat> he, he's upset when a, 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 an actor in Chicago took him off the front page. So he had to come in and, and yeah. say something. I get that. The, the first time we got any attraction on what something we've done in recent months was when Speaker Pelosi said impeachment's off the table. So right. it really wasn't about what we're doing. It's about what we weren't <laughs> going to do vis-a-vis <laughs> him. That's right. That's true. You make yeah. a point. But here he is. He sits... And he has effectively turned the, uh, the bar memo around on Democrats and said, listen, uh, you know, I'm, I'm totally exonerated. I'm moving forward. I'm great. The economy is doing well. So your argument that Democrats like to make it better to, to put the shoe on the other foot or to take the opposite tack, he'll say, look, I've made it better. I've made it better for everyone. And how do you react to, to him saying that? Well, he has a much bigger megaphone. And we need to be pushing back all the time and say, well, you, have, you haven't made it better for everybody. You certainly made it better for corporate America. Yes. And, you know, we, we got, had over a trillion dollars worth of stock buybacks last year because of the <laughs> a trillion dollars worth of stock buybacks. We did not have anywhere near that same reinvestment in, America. in their business and their Mer- America and the American worker. So we, we've got a story to tell, that a, a contrasting story to tell about the economy and uh, who's doing well and who's not, and we, we need to keep trying to make it. Although again, well, it's really hard. We have lower unemployment, right? We do. The economy is booming. So how do you how do you specifically deal without without using Kellyanne Conway's term, alternative <laughs> facts? How do you do that? And thank you for the bourbon, by the way. This is enjoyable for me. The last time I had, I hope so. yeah, when we sat down at uh, the last time I had a drink with someone when we when we did this uh, podcast was with Cooper Hefner in L.A., and we sat down and had a few drinks, and after a while we felt pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> so well, sometimes, thank you Sometimes for that. my staff doesn't let me do media without drinking. <laughs> I would recommend that you always do media that's with right. drinking, but that's just me, yeah. <laughs> having been in the media for a while. But yeah. so how do you, specifically, how do you, what's the point, counterpoint? The economy is good, the uh, employment is low, so why not reelect Donald Trump? Because what we have in this country right now is a very uh, unmobile society. The odds of people actually improving their standard of living generation to generation are virtually zero. Uh, there's no inner, uh, inner, inner class or inner income uh, upward, upward mobility. Uh, we have a, a huge, the largest income and wealth gap in this society that we've had since the the golden age or the gilded era. Yes. And so why aren't you making so, that point more well, often? Well, we, we need to. I, I talk about it all the time. For example, when you talk about, and I'll give you an, an issue that where it makes absolute sense what you're saying. He's talking about emergencies on the border. I covered the border for many years. I went down there recently back to Laredo. They say, look, in essence, he wants to build 55 miles worth of a wall near Laredo. They already have a river. And in essence, for 68 people a day that are caught, I have seen and am witness to generational poverty, a lack of infrastructure, a lack of health care, and a lack of education. And the office holders on the border say, look, 
Sure, you could build a wall and it may stop an extra 68 people a day from coming in, but why don't you invest? And they, and they say Donald Trump isn't the first to miss the point. It's not sexy to talk about education. It's not sexy to talk about health care. It's not sexy to talk about infrastructure. But when you have multiple generations of poverty, no upward mobility, there's the issue that the people down there would respond to. And here's a message that I think we need to be talking about, and it's not an easy one because it's not a, it's not a bumper sticker. We are maybe 20 years away from having a minor, at most having a, minor, a minority, a, minority, a majority, majority majority minority country. Um, the disparity between white America in terms of wealth and income, white America and non-white America, is. Well, it's, it's, unbelievable. it's stunning and it's, it's immoral. If we don't do something about that through education, through um, guaranteeing a living wage some way or another, through, then what is going to happen to white America when they decide they want to retire? They won't be able to because there will be no tax base. And when the majority of the tax base is coming from non-white America and they are not prepared to retire. To, to retire, then we got a real big problem. And so to me, and this was something that was laid out for me 30 years ago by a futurist, by the way, and he said, it's kind of like white America has to realize that it's in their selfish interest to make sure that non-white America thrives. And we, we, we haven't as done a that. country, we need to keep communicating that message. Is that Ron Mazzoli? <laughs> <laughs> I think, it, as I recall, it was uh, Alvin Toffler. Oh, wow. Future Shock. Yeah, Future Shock. Great book, by yeah. the way. And, and I think we, I, I talk about that often down at the White House. I think we suffer through that on a daily basis. We can't process what's going on before something else hits us right across the face. And, by the way, change is occurring at an increasingly rapid pace. And I always, the line I use is, we have a, a body here in Congress that at its optimum efficiency moves at 10 miles an hour. <laughs> usually, usually it's two. I've never seen it at its optimum usually efficiency. It's two, usually it's two. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, the world's moving at 100. Right. So how do we make policy that possibly can accommodate the change that's going on? And I don't know the answer to it, but for instance, when I came here 12 and a half years ago and somebody talked about self-driving vehicles, and whether we need to start thinking about policies about that, the answer would be, oh, that's 25 or 30 years away. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's here. It's now. It's now, and we don't have any policies about it. <laughs> and, right. and, and now we've got artificial intelligence, which is going to disrupt society as much as anything has ever done in our history. It already is. It already is. It's going to continue to. Uh, it's going to change everything we think about work, and jobs, and medicine, and education, and everything. And we, we need to figure out how, we're as a society, we're going to f move with those changes. And I, again, do you have any I don't hope have the that, answer to Do you have any hope? Because look, I'm going to be honest with you, and, and this goes back to the collusion thing. When we deal with the White House on a daily basis, most reporters who cover the president came to the conclusion a long time ago, once the uh, Mueller investigation lasted more than five minutes, that 
the Trump administration was incapable of colluding with the Russians because they just aren't that organized or that bright. Yeah. I mean, they have problems with conference calls, calling a photo lit at the end of the day, and working the speaker system. So these people aren't exactly what you would call rocket scientists. So how do you deal with a, a, a president who seems more mired in uh, self-aggrandizement than governing the country, specifically when we talk about the future. All right, and whenever I get a question like that, I, you get I, a lot of questions I, like that. I God bless my, you. I begin my answer. Oh yes, <laughs> I begin my answer with, in a rational world. <laughs> well, we don't live so in that. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we don't live in a rational world. That's the, that's, that's the implication of my of my beginning. What a dandy Don say if if and butts were candy and nuts, yeah. we'd all have a hell of a Christmas. Right. And we, we're not in a rational world, and we have, um, you know, a a public that unfortunately is largely disengaged with its government. Yes. And I I remember four, five years ago now I I was asked to go to Yale to talk about to talk to med students and pre med students about the Affordable Care Act. So I went up, spent a day on campus, met a lot of really brilliant people. I was blown away by how many of them said to me, I don't pay any attention to politics. It doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. And I'm say, and Do I they would, vote? And I would say right back <clears throat> to them, and you're going to go into medicine? Right. Do you understand that the government will basically tell you how much you can make? The government will tell you how you can practice. And if you're going into research, the government will, fund your, will be funding your research. You better damn well pay attention to politics because other than your medical training, it's the most important thing in your life. And, but they never made that connection. And I try to do that when I'm talking to young kids, uh, well, young kids and older kids. Right. And younger, well, there's a lot of older adults, kids. That, no, the, the government affects people's lives on a direct and daily and, basis, and significant basis on a daily basis. And too many people just don't figure that out. I mean, you know, kind of the classic example of that is when we were doing the Affordable Care Act and we were out marketing, and people said, uh, I just keep the government out of my Medicare. Well, <laughs> really? No, of course. No, that, are you serious? That was absolutely yeah. I mean, that became. They don't even understand the hypocrisy of that statement. I had two teachers sitting in my That's, office in two, the summer of two thousand nine when they were here protesting about what we were doing. That's sad. And funny, they, but they sad. were teachers in the public school system, and in in Jefferson County, Kentucky, they were teachers in public schools, and they said we just don't think the government ought to be involved in our health care. And I was trying to be very non-condescending. I said, well, you understand that the government pays for, the government pays for your health care. And they said, oh, no, they, they don't. Humana's our insurance company. I said, I know Humana's your insurance company, but the state of Kentucky pays for your, your health care premiums. Right. So, and I, you know, it occurred to me that the idea that they were actually government employees would have never occurred to them. No, we're teachers. We're not government employees. And that kind of... Public teachers. They're public teachers. And, and they didn't understand they were government That's employees. That's right. <laughs> oh, wow. And well, it is Jefferson, again, Kentucky. Again, this kind of... Jefferson County, Kentucky. <laughs> Let's, anyway, this detach, the t detachment of the general public really hurts all of us. It does. And, and I want to... That'll segue into one of the last two things I wanted to talk to you about before we get to the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Jefferson <laughs> County, Kentucky. Man... 
What's up with the politicians in Kentucky? You got Matt Bevan, who's an anti-vaxxer and uh, a cockfight enthusiast, as your governor, and uh, you got um, who? Do, who? Who are our two senators again, Congressman? Um, my longtime <laughs> acquaintance, Mitch McConnell. Yes, known for fifty years. And and, and uh, Senator Rand Paul. Yes. And so, what's what's in the water in Kentucky? <laughs> Why? I, I, I want to. I'll okay. take you back to. Let's start with Mitch McConnell because that's a far more serious issue. Um, as you know, in full disclosure, I come from a family of, of politicians, lawyers, journalists. Uh, my uncle Pete was at uh, mm -hmm. a circuit. Excellent, yeah, excellent, excellent jurist, and he's known. Uh, he's known. Mitch for uh, probably About 50 years. Time. Yeah, I've known him. The first time I met him was in 78. When I interviewed him, he was a moderate Republican right. who favored uh, abortion. And, you know, because he was a Jefferson County, Kentucky. Collective bargaining for collective bargaining employees. Yeah. When he, and by the way, I always maintain when people go, uh, what's the greatest legacy of Ronald Reagan? I go, Mitch McConnell. He's right. he was he was the one that came in in '84 on his coattails, the only senator to come in. By the way, he even wrote a, a, a piece about campaign finance in which he said that the the answer may be public yes. financing of campaigns. At, way back when, 1972. But Pete told me something, my uncle, that, that because he's known Mitch, and he said, um, when it comes down to it, he's known Mitch McConnell for 50 years. And Mitch McConnell boils down to one thing, power. Mm -hmm. He wants it. He doesn't care how he gets it. I've said that hundreds of times, including uh, in national media. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now here I am again. <laughs> no, that's exactly what. He, uh, He's up for re-election <laughs> in 2020. You all going to find somebody that can beat him? Well, you know, there are a couple people thinking about the race who I think would pose interesting challenges for him. Uh, Amy McGrath, who lost the right. sixth district congressional race, is thinking about it. Matt Jones, who is a radio sports radio talk show host, very very smart guy, um, has an audience across Kentucky, which is largely a conservative Republican audience. But they love him. Yeah. And even though he's not a conservative Republican, <laughs> uh, he might be able to peel Republican votes away from Mitch. So I think that's interesting. And then of course. We have a we have a gubernatorial race this year with three Democrats in the in the, the primary, and one of those who do, is not successful, or even if they're successful and don't win the governor's race later this fall, can turn around and run again. Run so again. I think there's a good chance we'll have a, a a credible, formidable candidate against him. And if we do, that race will become the Beto O'Rourke race of 2020. Yes, it will. It's going to be a it's going to be a keystone race, I think, yeah. in 2020. It'll be the it'll people be the will be watching profile. that. It it'll will be, be a very profile. high profile race. And he'll you know, our our candidate, whoever it is, will have 25 million dollars without raising a finger. I mean, the money will pour in from across the country as it did for Beto. Right. And uh, so you know, I and think Rand, we, well, Rand Paul's up later, so we're Rand's not, up. Yeah, yeah, Rand's up two years later. But uh, I mean, I've met. Bevan on at, at the grounds of the White House, and um, it's always struck me as to how completely stone cold, batshit crazy ignorant this man is. <laughs> he is the weirdest, one of the weirdest politicians I've ever seen. Most politicians, if you're going to be a jerk, you're a jerk in private, and then you're an angel in public. He is exactly the opposite. Right. <laughs> if you if you were with him, as I have been on occasion, in a non-public. Um, environment he is as pleasant and as nice to be around as you could possibly imagine but it's like he gets up every day and says okay my job today is, p is to piss off as many people as i can 
Right. Even if they're my friends, even if they're my political allies. <laughs> I've seen him do that. It doesn't matter. I just need to do it. I just need to, <laughs> to get under somebody's skin today. And I've never seen anything like it. Um, the, the, he's so much like Donald Trump. Now, in you so said it. Ways. I was going to ask it. Yeah, in so many ways. He's, because he, you know, he hates the media. He tries to circumvent the media. He uses social media and tries to, and avoids uh, dealing with the mainstream press. Um, he it, it will ins insults people on a, on a regular basis. He comes after me just kind of gratuitously. And he, my, he actually blocked my son from his <laughs> public Twitter account. So he, the, all the things that Trump does, he does. And the difference is he actually has some core beliefs. Yes. Which Trump doesn't. Right. And that's, I agree. So he's dangerous in a different way. So now they're, you know, they're going after Because he's a true believer. He is a true believer. He is. A, and he spoke with me on the White House uh, lawn until he found out who I was. And he knows David and uh -huh. Pete. And he just went crazy. He, yeah. he accused uh, me of being a plant. <laughs> and I go, look, yeah. man, I've been a reporter for 35 years. No, they sent you. I go, who's they? Who are the, who's this amorphous <laughs> they? No, we, you know, in Kentucky, we call him mini, mini Trump. Yeah. Um, but um, again, his, his, uh, approval he has a lot rating, of six flags over Jesus followers. He does. He does. But his, his approval rating is down in the thirties. His disapprovals in the mid fifties. So he's in a, certainly by polling, he's in a very vulnerable position. And yes, but the Democrats don't ever seem to get their no. shit together. I mean, that's, that goes right. back to, you know, what, you know, the Democrats want to tell you that they're the, the party of the people that were the big tent, that but they can't ever seem to pull it together. To I mean, I don't care what collusion or what the Russians tried to do. The Democrats blew the 2016 election. No question about it. And they did not campaign well. And you came out of, I, I was at the Philadelphia, and I, I went over this with somebody the other day. I was at the Philadelphia, um, uh, uh, the National Convention, and you had Bernie bros who were, they were never going to vote for Hillary. And there was no mending coming out of there. There was, there was, oh, no. it was fractured. So our, our delegation, the Kentucky delegation, was almost 50-50, Hillary right. and Bernie. I remember Hillary that. barely won the, the, the delegates. I think she won by, she got won by like 17,000 votes statewide or something like that, all of which came from Jefferson County. So we were happy about that. I, was at, I, I endorsed Hillary. But it's about the only place worth living in Kentucky these days, I got to tell you. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> so, but when at the convention, Hillary's, I mean, Bernie's people were not going to vote for Hillary at all. Right. And I, I, I actually had a meeting with them. I, I think I uh, turned some of them around. I know they appreciated my doing it, but it, it was it was rough. And you know, I, I don't think we're going to face that same problem in 2020, but. We've got a primary now, uh, three-way primary for the governor's uh, nomination, Democratic nomination, and it's. I think it's going to get pretty tense and ugly. Uh, Andy Bashir, the son of the former right. governor, Steve Bashir, uh, <clears throat> Adam Edelin, the former state auditor, and Rocky Atkins, the minority leader in the House, and I don't. Fortunately, I don't think it breaks down on any kind of Bernie Hillary. Um, Basis, but 
Uh, no, it's, you know, we have, <laughs> there's one thing about having a party that is truly policy oriented and very diverse. And that is that we have a trouble getting our shit together. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. And, and the diversity is a welcome thing. I, I, I don't want everybody thinking the same as me. My God, it well, would be a boring world. I mean, you sit on the floor now, floor of the house now, and you look around our side of the chamber, and it's not cut and dried that it's our side of the chamber, but it, oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. Who are you and, kidding? And you look at our side and you say, this is what America looks like. And you look at the other side and you say, that's what Brooks Brothers looks like. <laughs> yeah, that's what the 50s looked like right. yeah. in, in Tennessee and yeah. parts of Kentucky. So, you know, I'm excited about our, our new members. Yeah, they're, some of them are causing us a little bit of heartburn, but... They're, they're a little rough it, around the edges. They're doing it for, you know, 70% of our new members have never served in elective office before. Well, and, and that's a good thing, it's I think. It's a good thing. And, but, you know, they're, they've, they're trying to get their sea legs, and... Um, we're trying to adjust to them. They're they're very ambitious in a policy way, not in a personal right, political right. way. They have big ideas. They want to pursue those big ideas. That's why they came here. They lowered the average age of the Democratic Caucus by ten years. That's a good thing too. It's a good thing too. From do you think that should 40? happen with the with the presidential nominee? It should be a younger person. It depends. If it's you know, I still think that if if Donald Trump is the the can is the Republican candidate, which I still have very uh, grave or serious doubts about but if he's on the ballot i think oh i think, I think our best candidate is still joe biden against him but if it's not then age age joe's age would make a difference <clears throat> i don't see and this is just me from covering the white house and you can call me crazy but i do not see how donald trump doesn't run for re-election because i think he's scared to death that when he gets out of office there's going to be a couple of SUVs with subpoenas waiting for him when he gets off Air well, Force that, One for that, the that's last time. Po- that's certainly possible. But He's got to run to protect his own self-interest. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. So that's I mean, so. he is going to be he is going to be under indictment in a number of places. Well, I think him and his family, the family uh, as well. It's, it's you yeah. know, I talked to Jamie Raskin, and he said in that in that hearing on the Cohen hearing, he said, I left there thinking I hadn't heard this type of language except in mob families before it's it's the terminology is the same the fealty to the boss over everything else well, assuming that michael cohen's story is accurate and that he has documentation right. to support it and that's I, a big assumption is, remember michael is. cohen is a convicted liar that's right of course <laughs> so i don't trust anything that guy does but he's not only uh violated campaign finance laws the president he's also committed insurance fraud bank fraud uh there's a long list of, of very serious you know, much more serious than firing uh, General Flynn. Right. And so, yeah. So do you think at the end of the day, the Mueller investigation, that he funneled most of that stuff to the Southern District of New York? How do you think that fell out? Why do you think it fell out the way it did? I I think that he had a very narrow uh, mandate. Yes, he did. And and he respected that mandate, but in the course of... uh, those whatever it was, 2,800 subpoenas. I forget all the numbers. He 500 <laughs> people he interviewed, 2,500 yeah. subpoenas, a two years of, worth of work. A lot of things came out which uh, would have caused great suspicion about business dealings with Russia and other governments and conflicts of interest. And I think all of those things have been farmed out, yeah, because they weren't in his So you're in disappointed in the Mueller report? 
I kind of expected it. I didn't really expect it to be a, a smoking gun. Right. Uh, you know, I, I've said all along when, I, when I've been asked about it, I said, <laughs> clearly there's substantial evidence that there were significant contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians. I have no idea whether the president himself is implicated in that. And I suspect that's what Comey, uh, not Comey, <laughs> slip. that's what Mueller found out. Right. And so I, I didn't really ever expect that he would say, President of the United States is a traitor. And, right. You know. And so, so as we uh, as we come to the con- and I really do thank you for the time mm-hmm. today. It's been very enjoyable and the bourbon is great. As, as we <laughs> as we come to the end, I, I want to talk about something that's a little more fun. Two Kentucky boys sitting here having a bourbon. Yes. I got to talk about the University of Louisville and the University of Kentucky. <laughs> so here I have one of the things I think is funniest is when I hear the country talk about. You know, dividing in red and blue. That means a, <laughs> something a lot different sure in Kentucky. And what's ironic about it is most of the people who would vote blue are red. <laughs> University of Louisville, red. And most of the people that would vote red are Kentucky blue. Absolutely. You know, I, yeah, I, have, I do have two, two different wardrobes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that's, that's funny and it was funny because I, when I went I went to college and I, I was fortunate enough to go to Yale so I had blue there and I grew up as a Kentucky fan so I was at least consistent <laughs> there um, but now yeah it's very difficult and uh, it's funny I remember, I'll never forget when John, when John Y. Brown Jr. the guy who started Kentucky Fried Chicken oh, yeah. was uh, governor Kentucky, I remember that well. First, it was the first time that you, University of Louisville and University of Kentucky had played. played. In, in, and it in had to be decades. a state mandate to get it done. Well, the first time was in the NCAA tournament. Right, in that's the, right. In the finals of the, the Mideast Regional in I remember Knoxville. That. And I was there. And it had been since 1959. This was 1983. It had been since 1959 since they had played. And uh, John Y. Brown had a sport coat made half red, half, half blue. I remember that. I was there, yeah. So that's kind of what we need now is is reversible attire <laughs> for those of us who are U of L fans and Democrats. If we we need blue on one side, red on the other, we can just turn them around. But you know what I find funny about it, really, just to be honest. I mean, there are people that bleed blue, Kentucky to the end of of end, right. and uh, Louisville the same way. Although it was uh, I. I won't mention the coach because he was drummed out of Louisville. Who said, you know, <laughs> Kentucky, Kentucky fans, you know, th- that's their be all end all. Louisville fans have a life outside of Louisville. Won't mention who it was, <clears throat> Rick Pitino. But, uh, <laughs> but but the point being is that even in you know it's it's divided, but people learn to get along. Why can't oh, yeah. that translate to politics? You know, it. What's really sad in a way is that up here. It does translate into politics. It does. Well, yeah, we're all good friends up here. You know, I commute. With, I commute with Jamie Comer every week, Republican from the first district in Kentucky. We're very good friends. We can talk about anything. We can talk about policy, and we trust each other. So we know that if he says so, he can be open with me, and I won't go blabbing. That's a the wonderful press thing. And vice versa, and that's true. Mick Mulvaney's a friend of mine. President's chief of staff. I like Mick. I honestly do. He's always yeah. smiling, and he's working his butt off. <laughs> oh, I know he that is. poor bastard. I feel so sorry for him when I, I see him. I know he is. So, and I, I actually recommended him for his job as OMV director, which is actually a funny story. He called me the end of uh, December of 
2016 right after the election. He said, John, this is the weirdest call you're going to get this week. I said, okay, Mick, what is it? <laughs> he said, well, uh, I'm on the short list to be OMB director. And the transition team has an email address, and they're asking us to have people who know us call in or write in comments about us as they consider the, the process. Would you do that? I said, absolutely, I'd be happy to. So I write in short and sweet. Mick Mulvaney and I agree on nothing. <laughs> However, he is a man of, of, of high intelligence, character, and principle, and as the ranking Democrat on the Budget Committee, I know we would have an amicable working relationship. Short and sweet. It's a good, good rack. Yeah, sure enough. Three weeks later, he gets the, the nomination. So it was, uh, it was announced on a Friday afternoon, late on a typical, <laughs> late on a Friday afternoon. It's always on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> exactly. Everything is on a Friday afternoon. Or eight o'clock Saturday morning, and I texted him. Now, you, those who may be listening don't, may or may not know, he's one of the biggest deficit hawks yes, that he ever is. was in the Congress. So I, I wrote him eight o'clock Saturday morning. I said, Mick, I guess you owe me big time. <laughs> oh, that's right. You don't believe in debt. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I said, seriously, I'm happy for you. Congratulations. Like a minute and a half later, he texts me back. And he says, actually, I do owe you. I've been told your comments made a difference. I will be repaying you with rounds of golf at Doral. Apparently, I now know the owner. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, and Mick and I have good conversations. We, we trust each other. He texted me yesterday about something that he wanted help with. I'm going to try and help him with it. So... You know, Trey Gowdy was a dear friend of mine when he was still in Congress. So we all get along here. The problem outside of that is, first of all, they don't know that. They see Fox News. They see MSNBC. Right. They, they see the food fights uh, screaming at each other. It's all political theater. They don't understand that. Rand and I, have Rand Paul and I have talked about that a lot. And we're trying to figure out what we can do to try to convince people that they shouldn't hate each other, that we don't hate each other. There's just difference of opinions. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, as a matter <clears throat> of fact, that's what makes the country work. work. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, hopefully we can, we can play a role in that. Uh, we did a show on KET, which is our statewide uh, public Kentucky educational television broadcasting system, a few years ago where it was just the two of us with a moderator for an hour. This beautiful night outside the uh, the Cannon Rotunda, and it was just one of the most fascinating hour-long discussions you could possibly imagine. And it was funny, and it was friendly, and it was respectful. And about halfway through, I said to myself, "You know, anybody who's watching this has to think this is really different." Right. <laughs> yeah. And th they told me afterwards it was one of the most positive responses they'd ever gotten to a pub public affairs show. And so Rand and I are trying to figure out how we can do it again or something like that. But that's, what we, need, that's what we need to do. I that's volunteer to, to help. We need to do. Because, again, the debate, you know, the, Howard Feynman, we mentioned him earlier. Right. Howard Feynman, the journalist, wrote a book called The 13 Great American Arguments. And it's a fascinating book. And it's a, it's a it. great it book good. of our history. And it's 13 arguments that have changed over the centuries, but it's the same argument. Who is a person? Right. You know, as, as a, first of it was first it was we a black person, then it was a woman, then it's a fetus. Right. I mean, those but the the, th the themes are the same. So if we uh, we're still debating a lot of the same concept: big government, smaller government, um, and we, we've been doing it for a long time, and and we've done it generally 
with, with civility. But, you know, so many things exacerbate the, the polarization, the, the media, the, the, the fragmented social media, media, social media, media right. so much of it. And uh, so let me close any great answers, but well, we let me close with this. Mm-hmm. As you look forward, we sit here, and by the way, here's, here's to you. Cheers, yes. Cheers, thank you. As we sit here, do you have hope for the future? I do have hope for the future because the alternative is very depressing. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, I see, uh, you know, for instance, just our new members here and how excited they are to be here and how smart they are. I've been in probably 200 schools in my district over the 12 and a half years I've been there. I meet with young people all the time. I'm constantly amazed at how how smart they are and, and what they can bring to the country. So um, I, I am, I do believe that there's reason for optimism, but it's not gonna be easy. We're gonna have to work at it as a country. And there are a lot of counter forces that are making it more and more difficult all the time. So hopefully there's enough um, motivation and enough uh, commitment and courage. Courage it takes. Courage to, um, well, to I, make that happen. Well, Congressman, listen, I, I appreciate you being on the show today. I thank you very much. It was, it, it was very illuminating, and it was <laughs> a lot of fun. And we'll have to do it again. Absolutely. Loved it. <laughs> so uh, the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. We just ask the questions, and we let people answer them. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Karam, a bourbon for everyone, and we'll see you next time.